Hey coach, welcome to the Basketpedia podcast. I'm your host, Mark Hart. I appreciate you joining me on this episode with coach Brian Carver of Anka High School. We're going to discuss his 1-2-2 matchup zone on this podcast, but Coach Carver will be joining me in September for a full deep dive clinic. So make sure to check out the show description to register for that clinic. Hope you enjoy the hope you enjoy this episode and make sure to rate, review and subscribe so that you know when the next Baskopedia podcast episode will be airing. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Basketpedia podcast. I'm Mark Hart, uh, owner of System Basketball. Today on the show, we have Brian Carver of Inca Basketball, and he also hosts the Elevation Bad Basketball podcast. How is everything going today, Coach, in North Carolina? Oh, man, it's awesome. We're blessed. Uh, the weather is a typical you know, hot uh, July day, we're getting beautiful weather the first thing in the morning and you better get your golf in before lunch because after lunch, you've got some pretty nasty thunderstorms coming in every day, but it's good. Everything's good. Are you located near Tobacco Road? I I am about four hours west of Chapel Hill. Uh, So, you know, we do get to go down there quite often uh, for the High School Athletic Association in the state of North Carolina. That's where our home office is. uh, is there on Tobacco Road with uh, University of North Carolina. Uh, so anytime we have to do business down there, obviously we go down to uh, d- down that area. But yeah, we're, I'm about four hours west up in the mountains. I noticed you said Chapel Hill. You did not say Durham, North Carolina. Uh, that is 100% accurate. I you am a Tar Heel fan so you're and through. Oh, okay. You got a Duke fan here. So uh, so, so, uh, so, we'll agree to disagree. Uh, the that's that, that's hard for me to swallow. What? <laughs> 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 So I uh, just, my favorite, which will drive you nuts, my favorite uh, growing up in that era, my favorite two guys were everybody's hated, hated ones, Bobby Hurley and Christian Leitner. So um, those yes. were my dudes. Those were hated my both dudes. of them. <laughs> hated both dudes. of them. <laughs> those were my guys. So You know that uh, 30 for 30 that came out a few years back, I still hate Christian Leitner. I was like, yes, there's people that still hate. No, I, I respected the way they played. I was just a Carolina fan, so I had to I hate them. But, you know, I the funny thing jumped, is now that – I never jumped so high, Brian, in my life when Leitner hit the jumper against Kentucky. Oh, oh, oh this white that, boy. That is one of the greatest plays ever. That white boy could have dunked on that one. Um, I, yeah. I, I, I got yeah. up. Uh I was so excited on that one. I, that's probably the best college basketball game in my mind ever seen um, that I ever exactly. watched. In per- I didn't get to see it live, but I yeah. watched it in person. Um, I do have a bucket list. I have not gotten mm-hmm. there. I would love to see um, uh, a game in Cameron Indoor Stadium. So um, have you? Ironically, I have, I have practiced my team in Cameron Indoor Stadium, uh, but I have never been to a game in okay. Cameron Indoor Stadium. That's – very ironic, uh, but no, I you know I, I learned to really respect Bobby Hurley uh, after some of the things you know the thirty for thirty that came out uh, you know different things over the years and then him coaching at Arizona State and some of the stuff that that has come out on YouTube and you know behind the scenes looks of their coaching and uh, you know stuff like that I I enjoy I anytime something's on with Bobby Hurley I kind of watch it now you know uh, you know I probably I'm five ten and a half 
uh, I can squeeze it and say I'm 5'11". Yep. Uh, so I, you know, somewhere along the line, I should have made Bobby Hurley my hero because he, he looked more like me than the rest of them. So, uh, but no, Bobby he's, Hurley, that's, uh, definitely a the Bobby Hurley is the John Stocktons of the world. Yeah, exactly. Mark Price, Mark Price was Wake Forest, right? No, he was at Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech. He was at Georgia Tech in the mid '80s. Yep. Okay. Um, just for I don't know, I'm out here in California. Um, can you just mm-hmm. kind of maybe talk about what the landscape of high school basketball is like in North Carolina? How competitive is it? I mean, where would you where would you put it in nationally? I mean, I know most people would probably tell you that California, Texas, Florida, New Jersey, New York may have the best basketball yeah. out there. Where where do you where would you guys st- where would you stack mm-hmm. up your state? Well. I'm not sure who originally coined the phrase, but uh, they do call North Carolina the hoop state. Uh, and we are a very proud uh, basketball state. Uh, we, you know, we've got Michael Jordan. we got James Worthy. <laughs> we, the list goes on. You know, there's a bazillion Hall of Famers that all played their high school basketball in the state of North Carolina. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think by and large, um, it's, it's kind of relative. Uh, you, know, um, you know, right now, the majority of the folks that I'll put it to you like this. I had a, a board meeting. I'm on the basketball coaches association executive board here in the state of North Carolina. And we had a board meeting, I don't know, about four or five years ago uh, with our high school athletic association, trying to revamp, retool, if you will, some of the rules for the state of North Carolina. And I told them that, uh, you know, it's, did you know at that time that we had, I think it was 10 players in the ESPN top 100 playing in the state of North Carolina. And they looked at me, their eyes got real big, and I said, but only one of them plays in public schools. The other nine play in private schools. Uh, but to have 10 players on the top 100, ESPN top 100 list is pretty good, pretty impressive. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think by and large you're going to find most of your basketball talent at the highest levels. You're talking about the, the Power Five, you know, NBA prospect. Most of those kids are going to come from Kinston, North Carolina, which is a small rural town near the coast. Uh, and then other than that, you're going to look at, you know, your Raleigh, your Durham, uh, your Charlotte, your Greensboro area, your more heavily densely populated, uh, you know, out here where I'm at, uh, we can get really, really good players and there can be division one players even, but, uh, we just don't really typically in the mountains see the high end athlete. Um, I think the biggest difference I think I see in some of the peripheral parts of the state is, is the sheer size and athleticism. I've got a six, six kid right now, and he's one of the biggest kids, if not the big, biggest kid in our league uh but when we go play teams in charlotte they're gonna have four or five kids his size and two of them that are six eight six nine uh so you know it's just it's just a different geography um but nonetheless you know i I think uh depending on the year and and who's voting i guess if you will uh i'll put i'd put north carolina in the top five states in the country in terms of producing the high-end basketball players so you coach the boys varsity team and then in in the off season you do aau travel ball with girls is that correct i have yes i did not this year because my youngest daughter didn't really want to play (laughs) she just said she wanted to sit it out and uh, and stuff like that but yes i have been uh very tied into girls aau basketball um probably for a better part of 10 years maybe 11 years Uh, but i've been coaching boys high school varsity basketball uh, this fall will start my 31st season as a high school boys basketball coach, uh, 20 as a head coach. Uh, so I've been doing it a long time. 
started an AAU program. I, I guess, you know, sidebar note, I got to Inca High School where I was at and the school that I was at previous. We didn't do a whole lot in the offseason. Uh, and when I asked one day to the head coach, I said, how come we don't do a whole lot? And he said, because look at our roster. Literally, almost every kid, JV and varsity, minus maybe two or three, they're on somebody's travel ball team. So they're playing all over the place all spring, all summer long. He said, so all I'm doing is killing them. It's just too much. Let them go. Let them go play their AAU basketball, and I'll get them back in the fall, and we'll, we'll get back to work. And I said, okay. So my natural assumption was everybody's doing that. Uh, and I come to Inca, this is you know obviously 20 years ago, and the first team meeting I had, I said, hey, I need all of your AAU schedules for the summertime so I can kind of get up with you guys and watch you play because I need to figure out who can do what, and I don't really know a whole lot of you. And I think I literally had one kid in the entire program that was playing AAU travel basketball on any level. Uh, and, you know, just did some research over that year and found out that, you know, from a small rural town like we are, a lot of folks said they couldn't afford to travel. Uh, and they couldn't afford uh, putting them on a team that was way, way in Charlotte, two hours away from us. So I said, well, I've got to fix that. So I created my own organization, uh, and it was, especially at the high school level, it's, it was all Inca kids. That was the bylaw to be on the teams. You had to play basketball at Inca High School. Uh, and then I got former players uh, to come and coach the teams, uh, and then my staff and me would coach the younger elementary school teams. Uh, and we, we would just start, and, and it worked, and it worked really, really well for about two years. Uh, then my son became of age uh, to start playing, and I think I mentioned this to you earlier, but, uh, you know, first first tournament, fourth grade, got a whole bunch, I got, you know, 10 or 11 fourth grade kids on the team, uh, fourth gra graders on the team, and we go play in our first tournament, first game. They're fourth graders, and we played, played really well, I was shockingly surprised. We're playing against AAU teams, and we're all kids from one school, one community. Uh, and, you know, we go and play, and after the game was over, I had a parent kind of upset with me and jumped me, and everybody played equal minutes, but she didn't think that was enough. Uh, she felt like her kids should have played a whole lot more. And she said, I guess well, since you're the head coach, we need to find another sport to play because he'll never get to play for you. And I thought in my mind, well, that's crazy. Ma'am, he's a fourth grader, and I coach varsity boys basketball. And I said, and he got as much time as anybody else. So I made a decision that day that I would never coach the boys' AAU programs again as long as I was the head boys coach here because I just didn't want parents to, to pigeonhole them, their kids or think that I was giving them an unfair advantage. I wanted it all to be on an equal footing and, and learn. Of course, I'm over the boys' side of it. I uh, you know, I hire the coaches for it, and I tell them what kind of what I want them to, to do and run. But as far as me directly coaching a team on the boys' side, it just wasn't worth the risk. So I had a daughter coming through, and she was pretty good at basketball. And I said, hey, let's jump over and coach the girls' side. And it worked really, really well. And, uh, you know, I've been coaching the girls' side of AAU for, for you know, I said about 10 years now. Uh, I just finished 24 years and decided to step away yeah. and we were talking off air. I have a 10 year old. So we were talking yeah. and this kind of intrigues me that I'm debating on starting up a travel ball team for her and some girls, because I would recommend there are, it. there are uh, some, but not a lot um, mm -hmm. out here in California. I don't know if it's different in North Carolina, mm -hmm. but for my daughter to play right now, being 10 years old, it has to be co-ed. Mm -hmm. Most leagues are co-ed. They don't start, uh, doing just girls only until they hit like junior high mm -hmm. age 11 12 because mm -hmm. there's not enough 
believe it or not, in California, there's not wow. enough girls wanting to just yeah. play basketball for them to be able to form teams mm-hmm. of like in a league, if you will, like a youth league or whatever. Right. Most of it's if you're going to do right. this age, it has to be in a travel ball environment. Um, what's I guess. Can, can you tell me a little bit about what you enjoy? What part do you like coaching the girls? And, and is it, are they more coachable? I don't want to say more coachable, but do they, from what I'm hearing is they'll do exactly what mm-hmm. you tell them to do. Is that kind of your, to experience? the letter of the law, to the letter of the dang law, they'll do exactly what you tell them to do, it, you know, and you tell them to run over there in the corner and put their nose against the wall. They're going to run over to the corner and put their nose against the wall. And typically speaking, they won't ask you why, uh, where boys always want to know why. Uh, and boys, have a tendency to allow their uh, athleticism to they, – they might be more athletic than they are skilled, especially at some of the younger ages. And they and the, the better athlete will dominate. And, of course, they all think they're going to play in the NBA. Heck, I did when I was that little, you know. Uh, thought I was going to be an NBA draft choice. Thought I was going to play for University of North Carolina and Dean Smith. And, uh, you know, we all see how that turned out. But, yeah, there's, there's advantages to both. Uh, I'm not going to say that, you know – but I love coaching the girls. And it, for, first thing, it's a it's a refreshing change from coaching the boys all, all year long. Uh, boys are a little hard-headed at times, uh, can be a little stubborn at times. Girls can be a little catty at times and a little and a little jealousy. Can, and, and little things that don't mean a hill of beans to nothing uh, can, can wreck a practice because two girls don't like each other that day. Uh, boys typically get mad at each other push and shove each other, cuss each other out, whatever the case may be, and then they're over it. They move on, they start playing. Girls will hang on to that mess for a while, uh, you know, and it can it can linger for a while. But, man, I'm telling you, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I had the time of my life. Uh, it was some of the best, funnest, most unbelievable coaching experiences that I had uh, were coaching girls basketball because uh, it was so fun. And the girls loved it, and I loved it, and I looked forward to it. Uh, and like I said, then I could kind of switch gears. I could get through AAU season, and then I could say I could take some experiences that I learned, maybe you know try this, try that, see how it works, see how they took to it, and then I could use that experience to help my varsity boys basketball team. Well, today we're so going to talk. Like I said it was really good. Well, today we're going to talk a little um, defense on the podcast. Um, on my Sweet. on my basketball clinics, I've, um, we're going to talk per se matchup zone um, on the. On some of the clinics that I've hosted, mm-hmm. I've had some of the some coaches that are really good on the matchup. We had uh, Ryan McCarthy of Alaska mm-hmm. Anchorage, uh, Danelle Bishop uh-huh. out here in Cal Poly yep. Pomona, uh, Matt Anderson in Florida, high school mm-hmm. coach. Um, I did one myself. I, I run. Mm-hmm. I ran the one one three coach. Um, who who influences your matchup philosophy and 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 is it a one two two that we're going to discuss? It's one two two that you run, correct? Yeah, that, that's 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 what I run is is a one two two matchup. I feel like that uh, I don't know. Maybe this is ego pride. Who knows? I feel like we do a really really good job running it. I think we run it more efficiently. I see a lot of teams, especially around here, because they uh, you know they 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 kind of emulate some things they see, not necessarily in our program, but just across the board. And I'm and I'm watching them run it, and I go, Can you believe they're running it that way? What are they doing? Uh, and you know, I I was very very fortunate. I feel like sometimes that, you know, divine intervention stepped in. I was blessed, unbelievably so. My next-door neighbor growing up was my high school basketball coach. Uh, And, uh, you know, he became sort of like a surrogate father to me. 
Um, and, you know, we got really, really close as, as, as a player and a coach can get, especially when they're your next door neighbor. Uh, and then had the very fortunate uh, experience to be able to coach uh, with him for seven years. As soon as I graduated high school, he asked me to come on board as a, a, a JV coach uh, for him because, heck, nobody knew his stuff better than me. Uh, so that was really good. But then as time goes on, uh, you know, I get a teaching certificate, graduate college, I'm looking for a job. Uh, I was very fortunate to work for a couple of different coaches and a couple of different programs, but I landed on my feet at a local high school down the road from us, uh, T.C. Robertson High School. Uh, for those baseball fans out there, that's where Cameron Mabin uh, played high school baseball and basketball for that matter. Uh, and, um, you know, he's, I think he's, he, he, he just was recently with the Mets, but I think they cut him loose, but uh, nonetheless. Uh, so I go there, and you talk about polar opposites. The guy I played for and the guy I worked for for the first seven years, and then the next two coaches that I worked under, all were diehard, man-to-man, don't coach anything else. We're, that's all by God, it don't matter. We're playing man defense. So that's all I knew. I never knew playing. To me, the word zone was almost like communism. You just didn't do it. Uh, and no, under no circumstance were you going to play zone. That was a sign of weakness. Uh, and then I go play for, or coach, excuse me, not play, coach under uh, Coach Richie Sizemore at uh, T.C. Robertson High School. And, again, I think it's just one of those things where, uh, you know, God had a different plan because, dude, I'm just going to tell you, I learned more. Uh, man, it was so awesome. He was a one-two-two matchup guy. And he hired me because I was a man-to-man guy. And every day I came in and he'd give me 30 to 45 minutes blank canvas. You run the defense, coach it up, break it down, whatever you need. You got 30 to 45 minutes, you tell me what you need. The defense is yours. And I put, I did all our man stuff that I was, had known for years. Uh, and then lo and behold, we turn around and go play in a game and play a 1-2-2 matchup zone. <laughs> so I asked him one day, I was like, what are we doing? Why am I spending 30 to 45 minutes every day working all these man skills and these man drills, and we don't play a possession of it? Uh, and that's when he said, uh, basically, all the concepts that you're teaching, I want those same concepts in our matchup zone. And I felt like that uh, he got it from Coach Smith uh, and, and Coach Williams, uh, and they got it from Buddy Baldwin. Those of you that are Carolina folks and Roy Williams fans, you've heard – uh, coach Williams talk about his influence was Buddy Baldwin. It was a high school coach in here in Asheville. And uh, I think most notably, Buddy Baldwin came up with this version of the matchup zone. Uh, and, and obviously, everybody takes it and puts their little tweak and their little spin on it to kind of make it unique to them. Uh, but uh, again, like I said earlier, I think I see a lot of other teams trying to emulate or do the, the 1 2 2. I think sometimes it gets misnamed as the 3 2 matchup zone. And Essentially, that's kind of what it is, is a 3-2 matchup. But uh, the rotations are different. I see I see folks that don't rotate it hardly at all. They just match to the ball when it's in their area, and they don't they don't understand how to rotate uh, and switch out and do different things. So, I don't know. I just feel like that, you know, it's a unique perspective that I would have never gotten had I not taken that job at T.C. Robertson. That's good stuff. So, so needless to say, you teach – you still – do man-to-man drills to help with mm-hmm. your one-two-two matchup, correct? Constantly. Uh, I, I gotta give you a great example. Uh, it's so funny because it's so new and relevant. You know, we we coming out of the summer of COVID, we, we didn't get to do nothing last year. Uh, I think everybody and their brother in the state of North Carolina said, "Woo, <laughs> it's Katie bar the door, man." People are playing and practicing and uh, more games than than they would normally do. Uh, but uh, 
I had a coach come up to me and ask me at one of our latest, later in the summer team camps, right there at the end of June, you know, he's talking about our matchup zone and how we look good rotating and doing things in it. And he wanted to come talk to me about it and sit down with me. And I was like, uh, he goes, well, how much do you how much do you work on it in the summertime? I said, you want the honest answer? And he goes, yeah. I said, we ain't worked a possession of it all summer. I said, we show up and play it and do it in games because it's what the kids know and it's what they're good at. And they've been playing it since they were in the fourth grade playing AAU basketball in our program. I said, but every single day when they come to practice, we do our man drills, uh, we do our man stuff, our man principles, all of our – uh, stuff it, we don't match up and play zone out of it. We transition defense. We're working it out of man, uh, and then we just spend about two minutes on the board before we go play talking about okay. Now I, I, I'm luxury because I, you know I've got kids that have been playing it forever. I don't know that you could do that just starting out. Uh, you know, brand new with the defense, but uh, we don't work on it. We don't work on it a ton in practice uh, per se. Uh, if there's a situation that comes up that we feel like we're going to have issues with or we've had issues with, yes, we'll jump in at some in practice. Uh, if they get sluggish and slow in their rotations, uh, then, yes, we'll work on it some in practice. But I would say 90% of the days we work nothing but man and then play the zone. Okay. Um, so it's 1-2-2. Two, two, so, like you said, you can be misnomered for a 3-2. So I assume the point of the yes. zone is like heels to the three-point line. How, how far do you extend it out? Well, that is relative to most years, uh, but we would say we call it one-up when the, when we're in a one-up look, which is the traditional one-two-two look to it. Uh, we pinch the elbows uh, with the two wing defenders, and we allow the person, the top man in the zone, the, the point of the zone, to go up as far up as he needs to go to control the basketball. Um, that And it, a lot of that might depend on the matchups, and, and if we're continually getting our doors blown off, uh, up top and we're having to be in a constant state of help uh, initially right out of the gate, then we might back him up. But no, we uh, generally speaking, as a kind of a general rule for us, we put him in the jump circle uh, and let him come up and match up on the ball wherever that ball may be. Uh, and, and, you know, through scouting or matchups or, or whatever we've determined it might be, hey, let's try to force this way, let's try to force that way. Uh, and then we have, like I said, we, we pinch the elbows with the two wing defenders. Uh, and then, and Again, there's a lot of different little things we can do, little games we can play. If if you're constantly going up the right-hand side, we might we might slide the backside wing defender to the nail and then take the ball side wing defender and go ahead and let them match on up out on the wing def- uh, offensive player and try to deny that first pass to the wing a little bit. Just little games like that. But initially, to answer your question, we let the point man kind of go wherever he wants to go. Okay. As far up as he needs to go, I should say. So probably a common strategy that people try to – use versus it is they probably try to screen the top guy of the zone uh, with a ball screen. Um, how do you get you guys? You would be surprised. I, I, I haven't seen that as much as I thought I might. Okay. Uh, you know, and honestly, that's that's we do work our ball screen coverages. That's why we play so much man defense in practice. You know, we got our drop coverage. We got our ice coverage. We got our whatever. We got our hedge, heavy hedge coverage. Uh, typically, when we get ball screens, we blow them up and try to trap them. Uh, so we, we have all that. Uh, but we don't get to use it very often because people just come into the game naturally assume, oh, they're in a matchup zone. So they don't try to ball screen it, which I think they should, um, you know, on some level. Uh, on, truthfully, when we where we get hurt in our one-up look and pushing it up that far uh, is twofold. One is can we stop dribble penetration initially? All right? And then number two is how good are they at recognizing the foul lines kind of open? 
Uh, and I know that that you know, it seems like, you know, if you're listening to this, you're probably going, everybody knows to attack the foul line of a zone. I get it. But you would be shocked to know when you play a 1-2-2 matchup zone and you push that top guy out, how many people just neglect to see that there is somebody, you know, that they're the open area kind of there is around that foul line area. Uh, but uh, those are the two areas that we have a difficult time defending. Uh, and then, like I said, I, most people that I see, they stay in that 1-2-2 kind of shell uh, and, and they don't really rotate it well. Uh, everything that we do, wherever the ball is, changes our look. So we could be in a 1-2-2, we could be in a 1-3-1, we could be in a 2-3, uh, and it all is dependent upon where that ball is and, and, and how we match and drop our coverage as to what look you're getting with our personnel defensively. Forget what who I, I learned. I see your wheels are turning. <laughs> I forget, yeah, I forget who uh, I learned this from. It was a saying that when you play zone defense, mm -hmm. a zone determines the offensive formation, and and mm -hmm. and man to man, you have to react to how they play. So, yes, the beauty of things are everybody has X number of sets versus a man, right? Because I'm guilty of yes. it. I would probably spend majority of my time working on man offense than as opposed to zone. Yep. And then here's the wild yep. one is most people will have way more ways to attack a two, three zone than they will mm -hmm. a one, two, two, a one, three, one. And I'll even throw a one, one, three, even though a one, one, three by nature is mm -hmm. basically a two, three, but they just see a one guard front. Mm -hmm. So correct. Would you say, 80% of the time, you know, when you're in your zone, you're going to face a, a two, one, two, or, or a, a two guard front with three along the baseline or a two, yep. one, two with the guy. Yeah, the you, start into, you start getting in, you start getting into patterns and unfortunately, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, before, right like I, I can look at our schedule right now and I can say, okay, I know this guy's going to match up and play us against this way. Uh, here recently with the sort of the modern evolution of basketball, we have started seeing more four around one for obvious reasons. Uh, that that might even actually be the predominant set uh, is the four around one. And people will not call it four around one because they'll flash so many people in from the backside uh, and things of that nature. Back when I first started coaching this as a head coach 20 years ago, uh, people didn't run as much five out or four around one stuff. Uh, so you saw a lot more. God, I'm dating myself here a little bit. I don't know anybody that still runs it. Like the T-game, uh, you know, and things of that nature where you're rotating three people into the lane. Uh, Carolina under Roy Williams did a little bit of that. It's not necessarily the T-game or uh, things like that, but that's heavy emphasis on dumping the ball into the post where you're seeing two and sometimes three players in the lane. We, we don't typically see that a lot anymore. Uh, it is some variation of – uh, them, they know we're matching, so they're going to try to put us strategically where they want us to match so that they can get the ball where they like. So sometimes we'll see the, the traditional, you know, it's a 1-3-1 one, one offensive set with the guy at the foul line, two wings, top of the key, and a low block. That's, that's a, a good set if we don't see the four-round one, uh, you know, different things of that nature. Occasionally, I say that, there's a caveat, so I'm going to put an asterisk by this. Occasionally, we'll see a base set. That's why I emphasis base base set where they're two one two, uh, and you'll see that some, uh, not very much anymore. And this is the asterisk. This is why I emphasize base is there will be a lot of people that end up that way. They they didn't start out in a base 
2-1-2. They'll be in their four round one. They'll be in their whatever set. And the way the ball moves and their people move, essentially for us, that's what we start calling it a two-up look. When we get a two-guard front, any way that happens, uh, and and it's funny because people still say, well, I'm, I'm four round one. Well, for us, that's a two-up look, still a two-guard look. Uh, you know, you might be in your 1-3-1 one, one offensive set, but you've dribbled over to the right, pushed the wing down into the corner. While they may be spread way apart, it's still a two-guard look for us, and we call that a two-up look for us, and that changes the way we match up uh, to play it. So uh, some what I have done here recently, and this just happened by accident, uh, is honestly uh, I get a little bigger. Uh, by doing this, and I get better rebounding coverage, but we start and play in a two-up look. We'll put a person on the nail, uh, and that was traditionally our top guy who can go out to a one-up look, but we'll leave him on the nail, and we'll let our two wings go nuts because we got a, basically a triangle behind them uh, in, in, in help position. So we'll let our two wings go nuts and come out in a two-up look, and they'll match up to the two guards, uh, the two primary ball handlers, now, they won't follow them through on cuts and things of that nature, but, you know, they, they really – and that's kind of what we've morphed into. Uh, we can bounce it from one – I mean, you can pass it ten times back and forth. For us, it's a one-up, two-up, one-up, two-up, one-up, two-up, depending on how it works. And our kids get used to that, and they kind of understand how that rotation works. Uh, so uh, that's a long-winded answer to kind of what we see offensively. Um, but uh, the better teams attack you at the foul line. Uh, truth be known, they attack you at the foul line, and they attack you. Uh, the one vulnerable area that I have seen in every zone known to man, and someone might argue, well, the 2-3 takes care of that a little bit. On some level, you're probably right. But the most part, most every zone I've been a part of, it, they are vulnerable along the baseline. If you can get some baseline penetration, force rotations down, uh, you can get all kinds of backside 45s, you can get all kinds of cutters. Uh, you can get all peak, all kinds of people flashing to the nail uh, and hitting the nail for little short jumpers and things of that nature. Uh, so we work really, really hard on on stopping baseline penetration and covering the covering the nail uh, offensive player. Who guard? If the ball goes there, do you have a set hard and fast rule of who who guards it, or is it based upon what side has a post player on it? In the, on the block. Uh, are you talking area. about like, like if the ball gets the thrown to the high post? If the ball gets thrown to the high post, yeah. I assume yes, a well, bottom. And no matter where. Yeah. A bottom player. No matter where the ball's coming from, there is somebody that has that nail matchup. Okay. Uh, somebody, and it's usually one of our top three guys. Uh, no matter where the ball is, uh, we have a player who is responsible for the nail. All right. And they know that. So initially, Yes, that player is going to defend it because we leave our two low players down low. The, 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 we tell our kids the worst mistake you can make is if you are two low guys, one, two, two, and you're our two low, and you come up to match up to that nail, you, you're, there's nothing behind you. <laughs> so if they drive it past you or cut somebody in or flash somebody in behind you, uh, we're toast. That's a layup. There's nothing we can do about it. So we try to avoid that at all costs. If it happens sometimes because we're spread too thin and we get out of rotation somehow or, hell, they're just good offensively and they throw it to the nail and, and we'll almost tell our two bottom guys, just take a step up, put your hands up, and force him to shoot uh, a 15-foot jump shot 
uh, versus you going up there and attacking that nail and getting your doors blown off or them dumping it over behind you for a layup. Uh, I like our percentages a whole lot better than shooting a 15-foot jump shot versus a 2-foot layup. Uh, so, uh, But there is a defender always, always that's responsible for the nail. Uh, and and we try to do a really good job. That's the you know when I'm coaching from the sidelines during the game, uh, you know I, I, I'm, that's probably the biggest thing is that you're 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 too wide, you're too wide. Get the elbow, get your elbow, get your elbow. Uh, you know that's uh, we have a tendency when there's not somebody in there constantly and they're flashing people in, we're out, we're out, we're out, and then all of a sudden it's like oh crap, they flash somebody in behind us to the nail because we just get sucked into getting too wide and forgetting our responsibilities. Um. Ball's on the wing, and, and the ball goes mm-hmm. wing, wing to corner. Are you a traditional matchup yep. where the bottom has to come out and guard that, or do you just bump it wing to corner? Uh, depends on the year and depends on how quick and how, how uh, I don't want to say athletic because that's a bad term to use, but, you know, how, how good can my two low guys get at getting out there? Uh, I think there is, and really, to be honest with you, it's kind of by design. That's the shot that we're essentially – willing to live with is we know if you throw it to the corner uh, you're going to get some looks for the three-point line down there so yes uh, depending on the year and how quick we are our two low men are responsible for the corner Uh, so our wing defender when the ball goes to the corner our wing defender will automatically sprint to front or help front uh, into the lane area of of any post player defend a cutter coming down the lane Uh, and our low man will come out to the corner and our opposite low man uh, will come all the way across in front from the low side. So we end up in a 1-3-1. One, one. So there's one on the ball in the corner. Uh, our wing defender basically now is responsible for any cutting or flashing down the lane uh, to the high post. Our top defender, our one of the 1-2-2 two, two matchup, comes all the way down the lane and fronts from fronts the, high, the low post from the high side. Uh, so... You know, looking at the board here behind me, the scenario you set, can, I don't know if you can see my board there, Mark, yeah, uh, but you've good. got the wing and the ball's reversed down to the corner, okay? This defender is going to jump back to here. Corner man's coming out, and our top guy's going to drop all the way down to front from the high side. Backside defender's going to come front from the low side. This wing defender is going to try to jump right in front of the rim. So now we're one, three, one on a corner pass. Pass to the corner, we match to it, 1-3-1. One, one. Interesting. So the wing and the top are kind of guarding the paint? Yep. Yep. And he, this wing defender is probably more responsible for people cutting and dive, trying to keep the slow the cut or the dive to help us on the nail, try to keep people from, uh, they'll, throw the, they'll throw the wing corner and they'll have somebody flash up from behind to that nail or to the elbow, ball side elbow, and they'll try to throw the ball in there. So this wing defender is trying to get there. He's trying to come all the way down in front from the high post. Typically, uh, that is our most athletic player and our longest player uh, with the longest amount of arms. He would be like in a traditional lineup of a one, two, three, and a four, and a five. That would be like our three. Uh, It's typically our longest, most athletic player. Uh, because he's got to be the one that gets out by, all the way back out to a one-up look, but he's also got to be able to get down in front the high post when the ball goes to the corner. That's the difference in our matchup zone and virtually every one that I've ever seen otherwise. They typically do not drop this top guy below the free throw line. They'll cover the posts 
with these four bottom uh, players, and they will not use the top guy for anything other than uh, playing the perimeter uh, up top. And, and we don't do it that way. So two things come to mind with you doing it that way mm-hmm. is I assume you want to keep your other bottom block defender. So the second, mm-hmm. the second player on the block for weak side uh-huh. rebounding, that's why you don't have him come over. And he does come make, over. He comes but, all the way over. I'm 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 lost. Then you're then out. you're committing then you're committing three guys into the paint. That is correct. Actually four. Okay. We're putting four guys in the paint because we are most vulnerable along the baseline. Uh you remember me saying that earlier. The base this zone is crushed if you get driven on baseline. Uh so we'll front the high post from the high side with our top guy. We'll front the low post from the low side with our backside low post defender. We'll drop the backside wing defender to the backside. That's another area that we kind of we kind of just know. There's two areas that we just know going in that we're vulnerable. And the two areas we're vulnerable is can we get out quick enough to defend that corner three when I've got one of my bigger, slower athletes typically uh, playing that low spot. And the second area that we're vulnerable is if he does shoot it, the way we're matched and aligned is that we have a one of our smaller guards is dropping down on the backside to guard the backside for rebounding purposes. Uh, so I've, we've gotten really good at making some adjustments over the years, and we understand that. Uh, kind of what I was telling you about at the, at the onset of this question was, you know, how do we guard that corner pass? And some sometimes if we're really vulnerable on this backside, we're really not good uh, at defending that backside, weak side rebounding and stuff, we'll leave those offensive or defensive players where they're supposed to be, and we'll have the wing, <laughs> in theory, he'll the short – this – Ball side defender on the corner pass will only come out halfway. All right. This one will only come to right behind the rim, and we're going to front from the high side all the way down with our top guy. All right. And then we'll have this wing defender, when the pass is thrown from the wing to the corner, he'll come and try to jam that ball, jam it down into the corner as hard as he can and not let it get looked at into the post. Try to really like body up, chest up, and jam the ball hard as he can down in the corner. But they are so used to seeing this guy come from the corner, the bottom, at them. When they see him sit short corner, they're kind of frozen for a second. They're kind of like, he's not coming out to get me. And really, we're either daring you to shoot it (laughs) or this guy's coming to slam the door on you and jam you down into that corner. We typically only do that when we feel like we don't have an advantage with our, or, or at least can neutralize the advantage with our backside wing dropping down. Uh, if, if we feel like we can handle it, hold it in our, on the road, you know, not get in that situation a whole lot, it allows our backside guards to drop down on his backside, that's the way we're traditionally going to do it. Right now with my team that I've got, uh, I don't allow my big – I think I may have said it off air earlier. I don't know. i got a 6'6 kid. Uh, who's pretty big for our area. Uh, he's pretty good for our area, but he's my best rebounder. Last year, uh, after if you take the first four games out, and I'm sure you're going to get into that because we were running the system, shooting a million threes, and I said, wait a minute, one of our best players isn't touching the ball at all. Uh, so we kind of switched gears a little bit. Uh, but I said he was, he was averaging close to 20 points and 17 rebounds a game uh, for us. So he was a dominant force down the side. So it – it did not behoove me to have him going out 20 feet away from the basket and rebounding when I had a bunch of 5'7", five, 5'8", five, kids behind him. 
so we tried to manipulate it where we kept him a little tight, a little closer to the basket, and allowed some of our smaller, quicker kids to kind of handle that corner pass if we could. All the while, like I said, we know that's where we're vulnerable. So do you ever go in that situation? Have you ever morphed it into like a one-one-three and leave him in the middle of the zone? So he doesn't have to go out to the corner? Mm, some, we, like I told you all, we, we, uh, we did it uh, last year, and uh, I thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. We, uh, I studied Ryan McCarthy uh, and then went back and got the old Jerry Tarkanian tapes, and his version of the Amoeba defense is very slow, uh, very methodical. Uh, the McCarthy version, the, the more modern versions of the Amoeba 1-1-3 defense are freaking aggressive. I love it, and, uh, and I wish we could do it more. Uh, but it did 100% what you're talking about. It eliminated that corner issue for us. The problem we got into was we got really, really good at it. I thought, well, okay, we're we're going away from our one-two-two matchup. We're in this one-one-three, and we are really, really freaking aggressive in it. And we're we're learning how to jump switch, and we're learning how to uh, switch off and keep people on the ball side on one side of the floor. And it meant it looked great. Ding dong, COVID. You're out for a month. Uh, you, when you come back from, not, not we weren't out like we had a kid sick. I'm just saying. COVID rules, we got shut down. The whole state got shut down for a month, two months, whatever it was. So we couldn't work on it in our off-season development. We come back uh, after a two-month shutdown. Uh, and, you know, our season's supposed to start in November. Well, we couldn't even start practice till December. Uh, and then our first game wasn't till January. But we didn't get to get back on the floor till October. And when we came back, it was like, oh, okay, so everybody's got a, their own ball. You can't share a ball. You can't play defense. So we literally went almost three months without working uh, that amoeba-style defense. And when we could start finally uh, in December with practice, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it was the COVID. I don't know if it was wearing masks. I don't know. But it, it's like we never could get back to where we once were uh, at, before the three-month break happened. And I just got really frustrated. Uh, we were struggling defensively to guard anything. Uh, we were struggling offensively. Uh, so I've kind of, you know, we're sitting there at 0-4, and we were terrible, terrible. Uh, and I kind of scrapped both of it, went back to who we had always been, both offensively and defensively, and we won eight of our next ten ball games. Kids got comfortable again. We started playing very good defense again, uh, forcing a lot of contested jump shots and rebounding it, and then running like we stole something. So give me, versus your zones over the years, what's – Give me, I don't know, hopefully, hopefully your rivals and, and people you play are, are, yeah. aren't going to list to this, but <laughs> toughest, action, yeah. toughest action for you to have to guard. And, and, and when I say this, dude, you laugh at me, I'm going to reach through the computer screen and slap you. <laughs> <laughs> but one of my dearest and best friends who was, by the way, probably my most bitter rival, we love each other, but we – we're not, by God, going to lose to each other. <laughs> he was a rival coach at a high school down the road. As a matter of fact, two different high schools down the road. And uh, he ran the same action at both schools. And, hell, I knew it was coming. And we would work on it in practice. But yet, it, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's just an overload situation that got us. Uh, but to put it mildly, to answer your question, and I'll go a little more specific, overloads. Uh, when they put more people in a zone than you can match to. Uh, and essentially put you in a bind. All right? But what he would do is he would come in a one, 
I, I, it didn't matter the bottom half of this. It was a three around whatever he wanted it to be at the bottom. All right, so you had a, a top man on the offense and two wings. Following me? And he would take the ball from his point guard at the top of the key. He would reverse it to a wing and then cut his point guard down the middle of the lane and then bring them out ball side. All right? And then he would bring them all the way out to the corner on ball side. And we, they've got a post, they got a corner, they got a wing, all on the same ball side. And it's just very difficult for us to get matched up quick enough to where we weren't giving up a wide open shot of some sort. Uh, we knew it was coming. We worked on our rotations. We work on our switches. We work on our traps. And it's still, it was the one action that gave us absolute fits. Uh, early on in my coaching career as a head coach, it's like, you know, I ought to go back and apologize to some of those teams because I was, I was just not prepared uh, for some of the things, some of the nuances. But uh, in a, in a, maybe it's not an action per se, but it's things that evolve into that baseline penetration is a death nail to this zone and early on in my career when people started really really driving us hard baseline I didn't know enough about it to, to make the adjustments necessary my adjustments were and coaches out there y'all all guilty don't act like you ain't done it too you just got to play harder hell you just got to play harder well all that did was feed the fire because now they're freaking sprinting out there even faster and they're getting their doors blown off baseline and it just made the situation worse and you know, and I didn't, like I said, I didn't know enough of it. I didn't have enough experience doing it to understand how to make adjustments in our rotations uh, to help maybe stem the tide, if you will, in that baseline drive. But overloads, uh, baseline drives, and really uh, the last action that really hurts it. And a lot of this is relevant in how well you shoot the ball, obviously. Uh, but uh, uh, skip passes. Skip passes are tough because you get, so, especially in our matchup zone, because the, the rules at times – if you didn't know any better, the way we if we get, if we do it like we're supposed to and we match properly, hell, you might think we're in a pack line. You might you might almost swear we're pack line. Uh, so we're so kind of packed into that help side, those flat triangles like a pack line might be that if if we aren't really point on with our closeouts uh, and things of that nature, uh, then we we can give up some backside forty fives really quick, uh, you know, and the skips really hurt us there. Uh, ironically, we don't seem to get beat a whole lot on the back five, backside. You skip it to the 45, we close out, they pump fake and drive us. That doesn't seem to bother us a whole lot. Matter of fact, we encourage that because you're going to run into our help defenders. Uh, you pump fake and drive it, you're going to run right into our help. We're, you're doing exactly what you want us to do. What we have a hard time with, hey, I mean, it's modern basketball, is the kids don't shoot the ball standing on the three-point line anymore. Hell, they're five, six, eight feet behind the three-point line. And that is just such a long closeout for us. And if that kid can make that shot consistently, we're going to get beat. Uh, some of the, you know, we got beat each of the last two years uh, with just that scenario where they would put a deadly shooter uh, on the wings and he wasn't standing shooting that three pointer with his toes on the three point line. He's standing six feet behind it. Uh, so when they're throwing that ball from the opposite corner or the opposite wing and we've got to close out. Hell, we're having to close out an extra six to eight feet, and you're able to make that shot. It's tough. Uh, you know, we we wound you if you can't shoot it. Uh, I mean, it, you're you're at our mercy if you can't shoot it real real well. And just to be quite honest with you, the majority of high school teams have one, maybe two kids. Maybe if they're pretty decent, they got three kids that are above average shooters. Uh, 
But, uh, you know, you get kids that all of a sudden get hot one night and start knocking down shots right and left. Uh, you know, it's it's a, it's a not you, – you, you got to either make really good adjustments or switch out and go to your man, which we don't like to do a whole lot of. Which um, a few things – a few thoughts on that is uh, what are – you mentioned pack lines. So, so I, I honestly mm-hmm. start thinking about it like a Jim Boone and his philosophy of uh-huh. know, know your yeah. nose. Um, what are your yeah. absolutes? for your zone defense like when you play zone or any type of defense nowadays kids can shoot it they can handle it yep so you gotta be willing to give up certain yes what are your absolutes Um, that you don't that like it's gonna get a kid on the bench like if you don't make this if you don't handle this situation you ain't sub (laughs) <laughs> like what are your what are your what are well, your and, and I think a lot of it is exactly what you just said is is knowing that kids can and will shoot a deep three on you in a heartbeat and it is such a backbone killer for us if they're standing out there just catching it's like uh you know fishing in a koi pond you know as soon as that worm hits the water you're going to get a bite uh you know they so if they can't close out or they're not willing to close out or they're they're slow on their closeouts and we that's why I say we work so much man defense in practices we work our rear ends off on closeouts uh, and anticipation. Uh, we get, I, I talk to our kids a lot about, you can't wait to start your closeout when you see the ball in the air because you're already freaking beat. You've got to anticipate that we're forcing it there. We're allowing them to see that that whatever is open, wherever that next pass may be. And you anticipate and you start to see that guy's eyes start looking to go that to that next look. You've got to already be closing out to that. Uh, and if our guys are just slow on their rotations and just won't close out and they just are lazy on their closeouts, uh, being lazy in this defense will get you beat in a freaking hurry. Uh, and so, you know, if they're, if they're lazy, if they're slow on their closeouts, they're slow on their rotations, ah, they can come sit down and watch somebody else do it. Uh, you know, and, and sometimes I got, like I got a kid right now, he actually gets himself in trouble because he's so full of gasoline and 170 miles an hour that hell he over rotates everything. Uh, and he puts us in bad situations sometimes because we got to clean up his mess. And I'm like, if I could like take you and give you, put you in half these other kids that won't close out real well, uh, we'd be perfect. But I think the first absolute got to know you cannot give up clean looks on the three point line. They've got to be contested catches. They've got to catch it kind of almost turning away from the uh, the defensive player as they catch it. No clean looks on the perimeter. Cannot happen. Um, and the, and I guess obviously the second one there is uh, maybe we might allow it once, maybe twice if it's just they're really quick on our rotations. But that baseline drive is, is a death nail, absolute death nail. So if you're continually all the time on that baseline, you know, you're sliding up and you're leaving them a gap or a window of – enough space for them to get by you baseline and and I keep telling you and you keep doing it and then you know it they old saying you're either allowing it or or they can't they're I hate to say it, they're too stupid to fix it one of the two uh but they got to come out they they just can't they cannot keep allowing baseline penetration most of the other scenarios most of the other situations uh we can uh, and it's through experience you know we can manipulate the way we rotate we can change the way we rotate uh we can um, change the matchups, if you will. We can put different people. That's the that's the evolution of this for me. I can tell a difference clearly when I have a younger team and when I have an experienced team. Uh, my younger teams, man, it's pretty much this kid's got to know this box. That's all he knows right now. 
uh, and my young, my older, more experienced teams, I can literally take any of the kids and say, I need you to go play this position because I need that. It's better for our matchups to get you here. Uh, and they go, gotcha, fly around. And that experience also allows us to do more of the I think I think it was off air, maybe you asked me this about the 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 long switches or the short switches. Uh, we call them Tennessee switches just because for us the way the rotation works, it looks forms like a T. Uh, so we call it T switching. Uh, and it's whether it's a short T or a long T, uh, it's an X, but it looks like a T when you draw it on the board. Uh, so we call it a Tennessee switch. So you'll hear me screaming, Tennessee, Tennessee, Tennessee. Uh, and the kids know what that means. Uh, and, 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 again, that experience factor comes in. We don't really get a chance to do that really well with younger teams. Uh, so that's kind of a good telltale sign of where we're at. If, if you hear us yelling Tennessee, then you know that I, I feel like this group's an experienced group and, and can do it. And, and the, the, I guess the last evolution of that is – yeah, when the kids start coming to the sideline to me and I'm going, ah, ah, and they're like, Coach, man, I know I should have Tennessee switched that. I know I slow on my rotation. My bad, Coach, I'll get it next time. And then you'll hear it, and the next time that same scenario comes up, you'll hear them before it even happens, you'll have that kid start yelling out, Tennessee! And I'm like, they got it. They started to figure that part of it out. But, uh, uh, yeah, that's why I say it's so much. we spend so much of our time in our man drills uh, because we've got to reinforce help side, we've got to reinforce dribble penetration, we've got to reinforce ball screen coverage, we've got to reinforce closeouts, we've got to reinforce pressure on the ball. And you're not going to do that standing in a zone every day in practice. It's just not going to happen. Um, so scouting, that's, um, I know mm -hmm. me, once I, I went to, I've been pretty much exclusively zoned for about the last six years. Um, some matchup, right. some just, some two, some matchup, some two, three, some one, three, right. one. So it kind of changed the way I scouted. So we would, yep. we would label players as shooter, mover, penetrator, because mm -hmm. very rarely in high school, I mean, mm -hmm. unless they're really good, can they do all three? They do yeah, all three. Dang, they're a right. <laughs> if they do all three, they're a college player. And, Absolutely. And, and you're probably going to have to give them a little bit more special attention in what you do. Mm -hmm. Um, has it right. changed the way you've scouted? Um, mm -hmm. I would scout tendencies of what they like to do against the zone. I would scout yeah. uh, shooters. Obviously, number one thing mm -hmm. is who's shooters. Can they hurt right. us inside with the po uh, when the player gets it in the post? Does he like to turn left shoulder, right shoulder, whatever um, type of situation? Did it change once you went to zone how you scouted, or did you still scout the same way? Uh, I think early on, when you know, like when I first became a head coach, I scouted primarily sets. You know, obviously, you're going to talk in any scouting report. You're going to talk about this kid is the shooter. You know, this kid is their post player. But the predominant thing that we try to scout was what set are they going to run, and how are we going to match up to it. I think nowadays, uh, individual player talent has gotten a lot better uh, overall. So I think we're scouting more individual tendencies. Uh, with teams, uh, what do they want to do with this kid? What does this kid want to do, especially with some of their better players? Uh, so I think we scout that a lot more. Uh, one thing that really helped us was we uh, really helped us with our scouting is we, uh, and I don't, honestly, I can't remember which coach we stole this from, but like everybody else, we steal everything. But we started labeling our closeouts. Uh, we got our rondos for those kids that can't shoot it and their movers. All right. Uh, we got our Corver closeouts for those dead eye shooters. 
All right, and we got our Kobe closeouts for those people that are kind of that hybrid. He's the really good player. He's the he's the kid they want to get the ball to. He can shoot it. He can drive it. He can do a little bit of everything. And we know ahead of time before we ever go into every game, most of the people on the floor we've labeled them either Corver, Kobe, or Rondos, uh, and and we we match and rotate and do our stuff based off who's getting the ball and where they're getting it. And, and, it, and <laughs> our kids know the matchups. In other words, let's just say this. You know, hey, Mark Hart, man, he's really deadly shooter. We're going to Kobe close him out. But our kids will start yelling as soon as you catch the ball, Rondo, Rondo, Rondo. And and most other people know what our calls are, so they're trying to get it. Other people, and it's so funny because they're like, "Oh, he's a rondo, he's a rondo," and uh, and but no, we're we that that changing our coverages on our closeouts has really helped us a lot because we don't we don't over close out the people that don't need to be overly closed out, uh, you know, in that kind of situation. And we know there's kids in every lineup anymore that are just. They're specialists. That's all they do is they, they can catch and shoot a three. So we'll corver that kid and make him put it on the floor. We pray to God he puts it on the floor because typically if that kid does put it on the floor, they're, that, they're not going to make a whole lot happen. Uh, so we, even if we accidentally run by a corver kid, at least we didn't give up a catch-and-shoot clean three to one of the best shooters in, in Western North Carolina. We forced that kid to, to make a decision uh, and, and to put the ball on the floor and, and hopefully – you know, what they do is they catch and shoot. They're not good at decision-making. So, you know, we're going to put you in a situation where you've got to make that decision to be a good player to beat us. So that, um, that's kind of where we're at with most of it. I mean, being a zoner, um, learn that terminology yeah. from Will Ray. I, you know, yeah. he's, he's the ultimate zone-type coach. And right. let's talk a little about rebounding because I think it's a little bit of a myth, to be honest. Um, yeah. I went to zone to be able mm -hmm. to, we talked about how the offense dictates where your defense goes, right? Mm -hmm. So so now yeah. today everybody plays five out and tries to get that post yes. player away from the basket. So if your post player is away from the basket and he's your, your one dude that you have that averages 17 rebounds a game and he's out right. guarding somebody on the perimeter, now you're relying on whoever to get that rebound for you. Um, mm -hmm. And I'd be willing to bet if he was averaging 17 rebounds a game for you, he probably got mm -hmm. more than 50% of your rebounds on the defensive side of the ball. I mean, I I, I used to joke. I, I, didn't, I didn't chart it by percentage, but I'd say, yeah. I mean, you, you would look up, and we have, we have another kid. He's about, he's a, that kid's 6'6". Six, six. We got another kid who's 6'4". Uh, and those are our two bottom kids. Well, if, if you maybe not – I never looked at it individually between the two of them, but I would say if you took the two of them, they got 90% of our rebounds. Uh, you know, and then uh, we have another kid on the perimeter. He's about he, well, he wasn't last year. He's grown now, but he was about six two, and and hell, he got probably fifty percent of whatever was left. So between the three of them, they were going to get most every rebound we got. So my question is, is that makes any is, sense? It, yeah. So my question is, most people that use a zone do it for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons is is to keep your guys that can rebound the ball yeah. near the hoop. Yeah. To rebound it is there a special way that yeah. you teach uh rebounding to to your team we we play a lot of uh, a lot of our transition drills start with what we call box and break action uh meaning they uh will have five people out on the perimeter we'll have five people in the lane on defense uh i'll tell them both to kind of run around uh, in a circle so there's not a predetermined uh, area they're coming from 
then we'll toss the ball to a coach. He'll shoot it. When that ball is tossed to the coach, the offensive team breaks out. When he shoots it, the defensive people got to break and go box out. We spend a lot of time on that. We'll do. We won't even let them transition. Sometimes we'll just do a lot. We'll just do that same type of drill, and we'll say first team to get, say, ten rebounds wins. That's typically more of a bloodbath yeah. uh, situation. Yeah, specific uh, rules yeah, like, but, uh, like where they're supposed to where they're supposed to get or where you want them to be blocking out areas or are they still finding no are they still uh, finding no, not men? necessarily are they still uh, finding guys we, blocking yes 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 we the 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 lone exception to that might be our top guy because where we seem to give up the most of our offensive rebounds in our in our in our in our zone is right down the middle uh, we seem to get the bottom two people covered uh, and what ends up happening, and it's almost like a Rubik's Cube. One domino falls, one one thing, and it just leads to another. So if we keep start well, – I shouldn't say keep. If we start giving up those rebounds in the middle of the floor, uh, then what ends up happening is, by nature, one of my two low guys will essentially see that, and they'll start rotating up there to box out in the middle of the floor. And then, in essence, they'll leave the bottom corners – open and then they'll start getting offensive rebounds uh so it all starts back to me with that top guy in our zone you know i tell him you're you're responsible for the middle uh you know and, and if it's really an issue if we really start getting just hammered on offensive glass right there in front of the rim uh like i said we go to a two up look and i just tell my guy that's on the nail my top guy i drop him all the way and it essentially becomes a glorified two one two uh you know and and really i'll tell him you stay on the low side of that nail defender, that nail offensive player, and you make sure that is your job to rebound the middle floor. So that's probably the one exception, I guess, if we will, uh, is we preach a lot, uh, uh, depending on years that we have a hard time rebounding. You know, our two lows, they got the ball side, they got the corners. And our middle guy, our top guy, he's got in the middle of the floor. And our two wing guys, they're responsible for getting all of the long rebounds that come off. Uh, so we teach them uh, about sprinting, uh, and going and getting long rebounds, we try to form the little, you know, semi-circle in front of the rim with those three, and then, you know, they're responsible. If we're a better rebounding team, we're pretty good at rebounding. I can't believe I'm getting ready to admit this publicly in front of on Zoom that people might know, but I'm sending somebody long. I'm taking off. I'm cheating the system. I'm going to say I got three people around the front of the rim that are going right. to – I'm are you cherry pretty confident – are you cherry? Yeah, I'm cherry. I'm a cherry picker. I'm gonna send somebody along. I'm gonna make you have to come hey, since it, it, watched, you'll be shocked at how many people send two people back. I watched uh, the team that and here in California, they happen to be pretty dang good, but uh go 35 and 0, uh, win a state mm -hmm. championship out here with um a couple pros or three three pros, mm -hmm. one in the G League, and then one that might end up making the league this year as they're starting five right. uh, Chino yeah. Hills, uh, the ball brothers. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. You think of them? Uh, they ran that little high extended two, three, the, the ball would go off the glass mm -hmm. to uh, either Lonzo would rebound it. Mm -hmm. Namdi, the center that, that played for the Hawks this year, that got drafted yep. by the Hawks. Um, Eli yeah. Scott, who's at Loyola Marymount. Um, those were, that was their bottom. And the top was yeah. was a ball at when he was only about six foot one. Now he's about what six 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 yeah. seven for the Hornets. Exactly. And then, and then the brother, they would just take off and they'd play touchdown. It's it long. Yep. Um, now he's in. When uh, you know, again, that's one of those things where if if when we're good and and that and that's a 
you know, if you're kind of scouting us, if, if I feel like our group's good, you'll start seeing a lot more of that. You'll uh, Not only will you hear the Tennessee switch calls on defense, but you'll also see us, you know, if that three-point shot goes up or any really long perimeter shot of any kind goes up, we're, somebody's gone. Somebody's sprinting the floor and, and getting out of there and, and really – uh, we really try to go fast and play fast, and that's one of the best ways to get it going fast. So on a closeout, so say say he's a Corver, right? So I mm-hmm. assume on a Corver, yep. my terminology for a Corver would be you're running at him, and that kid, the rule mm-hmm. for us is if you didn't make him dribble to score, mm-hmm. he, he, yeah. no rhythm threes, he, he can't just catch and shoot. Yep. And I don't care if he's 25 feet. You're running at his butt. Exactly. And then you're just releasing probably in that situation, yep. right? And 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 yep. praying that somebody in those situations we're, we're we're running past him. Yes, uh, we in drill work and stuff. When we're talking about our Corver closeouts, uh, I usually get kind of pissed at him when they overrun it by three feet. Uh-huh. Uh, but then the theory, and that's where I kind of maybe you know talking about some of this Doug Lamov how to teach a little better <laughs> strategy that's going around. You know, I, I, maybe I got it because on one hand I'm saying quit running by him three four feet. I want you to put him, make him put it on the floor. I want you to make him dribble and take away the catch three. But you running by him three feet makes it – he doesn't have any pressure on him. It's a clean look, and essentially you've put us in a five-on-four. Right? But then I'm turning right around in games, and I'm screaming on that long closeout like that. If, you know, contest that three, hit the floor, and let's run. <laughs> and we're going to fetch it to you. So i got to be a little more consistent in my teaching of that. But, uh, yeah, I – I, we try to work really hard on the Corver closeout of, of of running at the elbow that he's shooting with to, and clearing off that side so that maybe we're making him move his elbow position a little bit. And then we're taking one – we're running so fast and so hard at that shot on the elbow side that we're taking one step past the offensive player, uh, you know, just that hard. And then we're going to – and that way if he does put it in there, it's kind of like a chase – defender and dribbling he's putting it on the floor and we're kind of chasing him from behind trying to you know pop it out from behind him uh and there and that that kid again is not somebody that's known for uh, being able to dribble penetrate very well so we put him we've taken their shot away and now we're as they're dribbling it we're putting a ton of pressure on them trying to steal the ball from them so it really works out really well for us on our corvers uh you know kobe closeouts we honestly i know maybe this is an arrogant statement i don't know we don't label too many people kobe's they got to be pretty damn good if I'm gonna put a Kobe code on them. That's a D1. Uh, I'm gonna force D1 them. That's a D1 player. Yeah, absolutely. I, it, I I would say there's more games go by where we haven't labeled anybody Kobe than than games where we have labeled Kobe oh, yeah. uh, on a particular kid. Uh, we are we are going to force the envelope. Uh, if it's a kid that's known to be a pretty good shooter, he ain't great, but he's a pretty good shooter. Hell, I may say we're going we're gonna to rondo that kid, and we're going to force him to make jump shots. We're going to put the pressure on him to see if – and he might – boys, he might make two. You know, and he's going to go up and chest bump and throw the arrows up and, you know, point to his girlfriend. But what we got to see is can he make five or six in a row, uh, you know. And then and if it's a uh, – you know, if it's a, if it's a no-doubt Corver kid, you know, it's a catch-and-shoot guy who's, who's just that, then, hell, even if – uh, no matter what, have Hilly could walk in, shoot a two-hand layup. I'm gonna Corver close him out just because I'm not gonna let him stand out there and just shoot threes, uh, catch and shoot threes. Those are those are the primary Corver guys. Is if I you know through scouting and watching him play, if if he really doesn't do a whole lot but float that three-point line and he's gonna catch, bounce, pop, then we're gonna Corver him as best we can. So if a guy gets hot, or he's their guy, do you have a shadow call mm-hmm. or morph it into like yep. a box or a diamond in one? 
Yep, we absolutely we did that a lot last year. Believe it or not, uh, we, we initially what we do uh, is we we shade him to one side. Whatever, typically that kid ends up on one side of the floor uh, against our zone. You know, typically you don't look up and you know every possession they're on the corner wing, corner opposite wing, opposite corner where you've always got to find them. They're typically in one spot, so it makes it a little easier to find them. Uh, so we do we shade everything to that player. Uh, we'll tell our our usually our typically our wing defender, uh, and that's where I say it gets really good when the top three people are interchangeable, uh, because whichever one of them is the best on ball defender, we'll start out saying look he's not we're not necessarily boxing one, but essentially we're boxing one where he's not really going to do a ton uh, of help side right here. Uh, he's going to stay pretty tied to this offensive player, uh, and then it's gotten to the point sometimes where it's like. Stick your daggone nose in his chest and don't worry about anything. You no longer have any backside or nail responsibilities. We will cover up for you for not being there, but you are not going to let this kid breathe. Uh, so, yes, uh, it's kind of junking up a 1-2-2 two, two matchup zone, but you're right. It essentially turns into a box or a diamond. Um, any, any book or resource that comes to your, comes to your mind about the, the matchup, um, can't think of i have it i was looking over here to my left in my library i don't have it here i have it somewhere else yeah. in the house and i was going to show you mine yeah. but um it's a yellow it's a yellow book about this big uh, uh i think the author yeah. is like uh bill green um it's an old right. you know which book i'm talking about it's like winning back I, I don't think i'm i'm not too familiar with that uh, one, huh? and that was one that kind of started framing my mind um some of the right. guys for me because I'll, I'll play mm. mine aggressive and passive. Um, Mike, mm. Dun, Mike Dunlap, uh, who just uh, won a NBA yes. championship with the Bucks. Um, mm. uh, underrated, I mean, great basketball mind. I don't want underrated coach. He was at Loyola Marymount out here. And I remember following him mm. back when he was at uh, Metro uh, College. Right. He, ran, he ran a version of a one-one-three, but he didn't deny it back to top. He went more like double elbow. Mm double elbow coverage right but the ball went to the wing yeah bottom came out mm -hmm. and then he would go double elbow uh, any resources or any books or things that you've read that helped um say give you that not specifically moment? to to not, not to specifically to our matchup zone because i do feel like we rotate it differently Mm -hmm. uh, I watch college teams. I watch a lot of high school teams run a version of the three-two matchup zone, and they just don't quite rotate it the way we do. Uh, so anything I can, that I see that I get on uh, the matchup zone, uh, I I will read it and stuff like that. But mainly, what I'm looking for for them is uh, different cues, different ways to teach action, how to defend a ball screen, things of that nature. But for the most part, our zone is so unique with the way we drop our top guy. Uh, you know, that I don't spend a ton of time in, in others. Uh, I go back to the people who showed it to me, you know, Richie Sizemore, Buddy Baldwin, Roy Williams, uh, you know, uh, stuff of that uh, nature. But, um, and, and really, I, I don't, maybe this is a wrong statement. I, and, you know, I certainly don't sit there and study other people's the way they teach the 3-2 the matchup. But I, I feel like most coaches, this is my zone, and I'm going to fit my people into where we, the way we do this zone. I'm the exact opposite. I'm going to take my people and I'm going to see what they can do best, and then I'm going to manipulate and change my zone to fit the, the people that I've got. Uh, we're still going to be in that one two, 2 shell, but from one year to the next, it may be completely different than what you remember it being. 
uh, if you're scouting us because uh, I'll give you again a great example. Uh, this year we we spent a ton of time uh, because I, I tried to get as big as I could get and I put a bigger almost almost post player at my top spot and we went two up. We played we never ever went one up. We played it two up the whole time and I let my two wings push way out and way wide and I let my top guy hang out at the nail uh, and essentially if you didn't know any better and you weren't scouting us and you just picked up the the, the DVR or something and saw a tape on us, you probably thought we were in a damn triangle too. Uh, but uh, we weren't. We were in a we were in a one two two matchup zone. We just sunk that top guy down so deep into the lane and and called it two up uh, that uh, you know that we would do it that way. So no, I, I don't I don't have a like a go to bread and butter book or resource. Uh, because ours is so much, it's so different, so unique to us and who and what we do. Uh, uh, I try to, you know, me. I'm just this. I'm a man guy. That so it sometimes it hurts my heart. <laughs> it does. Uh, so I spend a lot of time uh, researching man stuff and man books and man people, and uh, and then I try to manipulate that as how can I twist that same stuff into what we do in our zone stuff. Um. But in the end game, if you can't take those concepts of man, pressuring the basketball, closing out, handing a passing lane, boxing out, those are all things you do in the man every day. Transition defense. This will be the last question for you. Um, okay. I'm sure you have the ideal situation where your top guy is your top guy. I don't know if you mm – -hmm. so your top guy is one spot. Your bottom is probably mm -hmm. another position and your wings yeah. would be another position. So in all actuality, yep. there's three there's three areas on the floor, right? It's not five separate mm -hmm. positions. I would say if you know the right yeah. wing, you should know the left wing. If you know the right block, that you is should correct. know the left block. So That is correct. But me, when I played zones, mm -hmm. it was a made basket. Mm -hmm. I wanted my personnel yeah. to come back in specific spots. Yeah. Because right. I wanted someone a little bit quicker on the left side because to get out because right. they usually start the ball. I call it the left side mm -hmm. offensively coming down yeah. a pass to the right because most teams are right handed mm -hmm. and they're going to put right. their shooter on the right side of the floor. Mm -hmm. So yep. in transition, we would struggle getting to our spots. Do you have that same problem right. sometimes on a miss? So you're going uh, down on offense and you're getting back on deep. Yep. Do you struggle getting your spots filled or do you have spots or well, do you just don't care? Get it filled. Before I get into, into how we do it, let me say this. It's it's a it is a seems like it's an, a never ending saga here at Inca High School with this. I'll have a one or two year period where I am very experienced. But there's always right behind it, it seems like there is this sort of proverbial, if you will, almost hole. And the only way I can fix that hole is to get really young. So I go from very experienced to really, really young. I'll give you an example. I had nine seniors three years ago, four years, three years ago, I had nine seniors. The very next year, I had four freshmen and six sophomores on the varsity. One of the freshmen started, the other two of the other three were rotating in. And we started, so we, that year we started a sophomore, two sophomores, a freshman, and then two seniors. Uh, so it's like, it, we're, we're just completely out. So, yes, I, I agree with you. The, the, the years where we're really, really young, we struggle in transition defense. It just it, It's just the nature of the beast. Uh, I don't typically, I think a lot of it goes back to what you said. Uh, if you know the right wing, you know the left wing. If you know the right block, you know the left block. The top guy is the key guy. He's the important guy. So, 
they know kind of where they go. I don't really spend a whole lot of time saying, you know, little Johnny, you got to go to the right wing every single time. I, I spend a lot of time talking about forming the wall, uh, getting to the rim, protecting the rim. Uh, so uh, we 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 press. <laughs> we press. Even when we probably shouldn't, we press. Uh, you know, I'm guarantee some of my parents are like, yeah, they press. <laughs> but we press. So if it's a made basket, uh, we're we're we've got three or four different looks that all fall back into our matchup zone or how we want to play it. Uh, but we get we press, and all that is designed. If nothing else, I said, boys, if they never turn it over the whole game, and we've kept them from eat, eat, you know transition baskets, then we've won uh, that battle. So you know we we're our primary goal for the press is to keep them from transitioning on us, especially on a made basket. Uh, in a in a uh, live ball situation, um, some of this changes from year to year, depending on how many kids I'm going to send to the glass to rebound. If we're really struggling and we really need to be at those extra, we're not a very good shooting team, and we're going to get a ton of offensive rebounds. We got to get offensive rebounds to survive. Uh, then I'm sending four to the glass, uh, you know, and, and and the one guy back. And typically, the one guy back is one of the two wings. All right, he's the one back because what we typically do in a live ball transition situation is if you're the top man, your job is to find and stop the ball as far up as you need to to go get the ball. So you'll see sometimes, uh, even though we're maybe not pressing in a live ball situation, uh, the rebound to go, belt outlet to the point guard, our top guy attacks the ball uh, just to keep him from advancing the ball up the floor. We've already got one that's sprinting back to the nail. Uh, and then one of my two back defenders will always get to the front of the rim. All right. Uh, and then we tell the other two. So we got the nail, the front of the rim covered. All right. Now the other two, the other wing, we always load up ball side. So I don't care which wing you were. You're going to be – I'm already pushing you out to, like you said, their best shooter is going to be on the right-hand side. I'm going to push you all the way out. And then in my ball side – uh, my other, the last guy coming down the floor typically, most people say we'll get him on the backside. It most time it works out that way, but we try to get him on ball side low block as quick as we can, uh, just to kind of overload ball side and force a skip uh, in um, in our actions in our zones. Because like you said, I think most people are right-handed. They push the ball so far up the floor. If you can force them to make one or two passes out, uh, then you can you got a chance to balance up your defense. Uh, Brent Tipton, uh, Mark Cassio, Chris Oliver, Alex, and I forget his, you know how to pronounce his last Sarama. Sarama, yeah. They're all going to argue, you do that, I'm going to make dominoes fall real quick. Uh, and I get it. I, I do get it. But in terms of just simply stopping transition basketball, uh, we we our top guy in the zone attacks the ball. Uh, our our Usually our quicker wing, our point guard, uh, if you will, a lot of times, uh, our kid is not going to go rebound. I guess that's the easiest way to say it. We'll send him. We'll sprint him to the nail as quickly as we can, uh, and then we'll get one of our two bigs. The first one that can get back gets the rim. The other two try to load up ball side as best they can, uh, and 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 we really try to just pack that ball side heavy because most of your secondary actions are are starting with some type of ball screen or some type of. You know, action all on that ball side. So if we can run you out of it because we got more defenders than you got offensive players out of there, I feel like we've at least won. So, well, that was awesome stuff. Um, enjoyed it. Uh, appreciate you, you doing this. I know you love talking hoop. Um, I do. 
We I could do. Go, we could probably go another hour or so talking about <laughs> easily. That people, but people have already turned the broadcast off, I'm sure. But uh, I do appreciate them <laughs> I staying. Appreciate on board. you coming on and doing this, and 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 we'll talk soon, man. Appreciate you, brother. Thanks. Hey, coach. Thanks for joining me and Coach Carver on this episode of the Maskopedia podcast as we discussed his matchup zone. If you want to take a deeper dive on his matchup zone, he will be joining me on System Basketball Clinics on September 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. So so head on over to systembasketball.podia.com to get registered today.